Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. UX Cake is all about developing the layers you need to be more effective in your work and to be happy and fulfilled in your career. I'm your host, Lee Allen Arredondo, and I'm a UX leader and leadership coach. Hello, friends. Welcome to UX Cake. It's been a little bit longer than usual since I published the last episode. I usually try to get these out every couple of weeks, and it's been more like almost two months since the last episode. Things will be getting back on track, but I wanted to share with you what I've been so busy with because, well, because I'm excited about it (laughs) and because it's for you, for the UX community. So you may know that I am a UX leadership coach. I work with UX professionals at all levels as they navigate their career and supporting them in becoming more strategic and to gain clarity about what's really most important and how to achieve that (laughs) and to build practices for a career that is sustainable and that is authentic and purposeful and impactful. And now I'm taking that to group programs because I just love the sense of community that that creates. And it actually ends up being, I think, even more powerful for, um, for the people who participate. I just wrapped up strategic UX management in November, a seven week group coaching program. It was awesome and powerful (laughs) and a lot of fun. Um, and now I'm very busy putting together some workshops, like half day workshops and more multi-week group programs for 2023 to help UX managers as well as individual contributors, because I know that people at all levels in UX and in all roles really do need more support. (laughs) And we need community in order to create the kind of impact and meaning that we that we really want in our work and in our careers. And that's what I want for you. So if you would like to find out more about my programs now or in the future, head on over to strategic UX leader. That's one word, strategicuxleader.com. So today I'm talking with Ryan Rumsey about feeling like an outsider in design and the very human need to belong and how we so often compare ourselves to others, or I should say to our perception of others, because that's actually more accurate. And Ryan and I are speaking from our experiences within design, but I know that this will resonate with anyone who has felt like an outsider in anywhere that they work. (laughs) My guest, Ryan Rumsey, is the author of Business Thinking for Designers and the CEO of Second Wave Dive and Chief Design Officers School. Before founding Second Wave Dive, Ryan worked for over 20 years as a designer and as an executive at Apple, Electronic Arts, USAA, Nestle, and Comcast. So Ryan has a plethora of experience and titles in design, but as we talk about, those things aren't 
actually what we need to combat the feeling of being an outsider or to create a feeling of belonging. As I mentioned, feeling like an outsider isn't exclusive to design. Any profession or community can feel like there are insiders and we aren't one of them. And design does seem to be particularly susceptible to elitism in my experience. I have wondered if it might have something to do with the the visual nature of what we do, um, even though not all design is visual design, all aspects of design do tend to to have some visual aspect to it when we're presenting and communicating with others, right? I think there's also definitely this sense of scarcity that drives a lot of the behavior and the rhetoric that I see and hear. Perception of scarcity can really create subconscious thoughts like, there's not enough room for everyone (laughs) that makes people very competitive and not inclusive. And there are always going to be insiders who do not want to accept outsiders, kind of like the cool kids in middle school, right? Rejecting anyone not deemed cool enough. And that's largely based on their own security and need to belong. There's also a fear of people who are different and combined with a fear of change. Also, very human <laughs> human reactions, right? And this can lead to kind of othering sort of behavior. Um, now, to be clear, today we're not actually talking about the othering or otheringness that comes as part of being in an underrepresented group in tech where or wherever we work. There are a whole host of biases around race and color and country of origin and gender and cisgender norms and disability and neurodiversity, age, (laughs) where you went to school. I mean, these other biases can also really magnify this outsider effect. And Those are external signals, and they are real, and they have very real consequences. But today, we're really talking more about the internal emotions uh, and the thoughts of our own that contribute to feeling like an outsider, as well as how to get out of that mindset and find belonging. A little bit about mindset here. We talk a little bit in our conversation to the power of celebrating what sets us apart and incorporating it into our unique story. And I want to bubble that up here because that is just so powerful. Owning your own uniqueness and what makes you feel different, what makes you different is part of your brilliant light. And hiding your light not only makes it more difficult for you to see your own path forward, it can also keep others who might be on a similar path in the dark as well. And I think that that's a really powerful way of looking at the benefit of getting outside of our comfort zone, which is what it takes to change your mindset. Stick around to the end to find out some other resources that may help. And those links are in the show notes as well. Okay, let's dive into our conversation with Ryan Rumsey. So good morning, Ryan, and thank you so much for joining me on UX Cake today. 
Yeah, thanks for having me. I am so excited to talk about being feeling like an outsider in design. I have actually had that conversation with multiple other people in design and in fact leaders in design like you and mm. me. So I know that there are others out there that this resonates with. There are so many ways to experience that feeling of an, being an outsider or not belonging. So I'd love to start with just finding out what do you mm. mean when you say feeling like an outsider in design? I think like many things, everything starts with our families of origin. And it's more complex of not just design for me. I think in many aspects of my life, I've felt like an outsider. And mm. knowing what I know now about trauma and trauma survival and all that kind of stuff, you know, my parents both survived lots of trauma and they did this wonderfully amazing breaking of the cycle as parents to myself and my sister. And yet there are still leftover bits of, of trauma. And so when I think of being an outsider, it really starts at, at a very early age of mm -hmm. where the world was presented to me as a risk. Everything was like danger. And so it was safer to not express yourself. I think looking back now and, and some of the work that I've I've done, self-work, it's maybe perhaps I didn't feel safe anywhere uh, to be able to express my own feelings or, or whatnot. And so, you know, by the time you get to young adulthood and then working career, being an outsider in design is always, I think, rooted in feeling like an outsider. It's funny you that know, you're that yeah. you, you are bringing that up, like <laughs> the whole like general feeling of not belonging. Right. I actually was going to get around to that, but you just dove in. So thank you mm, for that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I was friends with lots of people, but I didn't belong. I didn't have a sense of belonging to any group or people yeah. growing up, and I think that much of that then easily pivoted into being a young adult and starting a career and all those things. And, you know, I started my design career kind of late, mm -hmm. meaning as a young adult, I struggled a lot with mental health stuff. And so just this sort of general feeling of feeling like an outsider, but also feeling like lots of shame and, mm -hmm. and all these types of things that I, I had lots of interests as a young man, but I also like everything was a risk. And so I didn't, I couldn't choose or make decisions. And so I was designing, but I never thought of it as a career. I thought of it in the nineties, at least like, oh, I was doing this thing, but then I was going at home and playing around on my computer at night mm -hmm. and it was just play. And occasionally people learned that and they would ask to oh, could I help them with something? And I, they would pay me to do that. But I never <laughs> thought about it as a career. And really, I never really thought about it as a career till I was probably about close to 30. And so by the time that I transitioned and said, this is what I really want to do full time, I kind of already felt like it was too late. Like there was mm. a lot of catching up that I had to do because mm -hmm. I have peers the same age of mine who have 
blogs and they they're talking <laughs> about all these other things and they're being quite public and there was a lot of movement of contemporaries and peers moving to the bay area and getting involved there and i never wanted to be there i never wanted to live in the bay area it was sort mm -hmm. of wasn't a fit for me and i think a lot of feeling like an outsider was still very much my own projection of how I saw myself in the world. And that's kind of where it started. But then there were circumstantial things that started to happen too. I got hired by Apple. And Apple, especially the org that I was in, was one of these like secretive orgs mm -hmm. where I didn't work on the fun Steve Jobs stuff <laughs> or the, uh -huh. the in, in air quotes, of course. So, you know, like the popular things I didn't work on. I worked in Tim Cook's org when he was the CFO for Apple Care and so I was doing internal tools and employee experience type things a long time ago but I knew about product launches about 18 months before they happened so I was sworn to secrecy and generally the vibe was you can't talk about your work you can't mm -hmm. go to com conferences, <laughs> you can't speak, you can't be part of the broader industry. And so I was mm. very much like in and doing all the same things, but I was not allowed to kind of participate in the community of it. And so yeah. I think as still a relatively young adult, those two factors really compounded into me internalizing this sort of paradox of wanting to participate, wanting to be involved, wanting to feel like I was part of community, but also like wanting to be seen mm -hmm. and wanting right. to be validated. I remember I would, the, the one conference that I was kind of, it was okay that I could go to was South by Southwest because it was in Austin and I was in Austin. And I think it was like 2007, 2008, there was a panel which had some Apple designers on it and they were working more on brand stuff. And I went up and I was very excited. I was like, Oh, I'm going to get to actually, this is the first opportunity for me to even connect with other designers at Apple. Yeah. And I went up to this person. I said, Hey, I work there too. And I, I do design in this area. And their response was very hands-off kind mm. of thing. They weren't excited they weren't like looking to expand their community mm -hmm. in different ways. They were like, oh, I never knew that that happened there. Cool. Right, nice yeah. to meet you. Very dismissive. Uh -huh. And so that sort of courage it took me internally to go up to a stranger mm -hmm. and just say, I, hey, I'd like to play too. Kind of like the <laughs> playground approach. Right. Yeah. Right. And then it was met, met with a stiff hand and kind of a correction. Right just kind of exacerbated how at the time I was feeling mostly about myself, but then, mm -hmm. then my, my role in feeling like an outsider. Yeah. Wanting to belong is a very strong emotional human need. And it's one of the like basic <laughs> needs that motivates human behavior, right? Yeah. Um, according to Maslow and his hierarchy of needs, but it's this desire to be accepted and supported from a group of others. And I think for a lot of people, there's internal 
things that are maybe projecting and or a lack of self-confidence is another thing that I see a lot or just like literally your path not conforming to what is the typical pathway, which similar to you, I think that was a lot of it for me as well. Mm. Design for me was a way to put myself through college, (laughs) which was a long journey in and of itself for me. (laughs) I uh, I actually graduated till I was 29. And I, I went to film school. And by that time, I was already, I had moved from graphic design into interaction design. Mm-hmm. in the 90s so it wasn't called ux and there was definitely this sense of am i legit <laughs> even though i had jobs right yeah i know for me it actually affected career choices that i made specifically mm. what i recall is agencies mm. were full of designers with a capital d and they dressed like designers and they yeah, yeah, yeah went to design school or maybe art school and they talk about dismissive there was just this yeah. aura of better than thou so i avoided agency work mm-hmm. even though i did end up doing agency work throughout my career but they were very specific types of agencies that weren't like that but i'm curious how it you feel like that those feelings affected your career choices you know i had very different paths i was never a graphic designer like i don't i know the basics of color theory and kerning and all these things but that's not my fundamental foundational thing i was i was kind of a hybrid i knew how to develop and code And so I got into interaction design more through like information architecture. I studied history. Uh And so there was this like, oh, information architecture is just like the Dewey Decimal System at the library. Oh, you know, these sort of (laughs) sideways things. But I was very much a maker and I didn't know which role I fit, because if we also remember the 90s, especially with digital work, it was about making websites. It was about browser standards and things like that. So I was really into CSS, but CSS with interaction design. So I was really about the sort of helping people resolve needs and you know all that kind of stuff but also really interested in the tech piece of that and getting really interested in sort of browser-based CSS capabilities so that I wouldn't have to learn Java. I learned Java, but it was more, oh, there's all these other ways that I can get out of having to rely on Photoshop, which is clearly not a tool for making things on the web, even though it was Mm -hmm. the only tool for us. But my career was happenstance 2000 i was also acting in los angeles because i (laughs) sort of didn't really know what i wanted to do and i would go home and during my off time when i wasn't rehearsing or going to casting stuff or working i'd spend eight to ten hours in front of the computer making websites for people Hmm. And but I never thought of it as this is a career. I never advertised. I never people just sort of through word of mouth 
you know, oh, my my roommate does this. Oh, so-and-so, my friend Ryan does this. And that's how mm-hmm. I started getting work. And then my first career choice was a friend of a friend, a, fr- a friend of my roommate, where I yeah. was just saying, I want to stop acting. I want to do this full time. I, I just don't even know where to start. I'm I'm over 30 now. I'm out of the whole loop of having a university help you get a gig. And I don't live in San Francisco. I live in LA. I don't even know mm. where to start. Mm-hmm. But just through that conversation, my roommate's friend said, oh, my roommate works here. Yeah. They're looking for somebody I should introduce you. And so that's where the journey began. And then how I got hired at Apple was just pure luck. Um, <laughs> I'm sure there was no talent included in well, the hiring process. <laughs> the, what I mean by that is there was talent, but that they found me was luck. Gotcha. Meaning it was very circumstantial. I put my resume on dice.com, which was mm-hmm. for engineers and for developers, like because yeah. there was no real place for designers at the time. And Apple just called me two days later. Hmm. And I was like, what? 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 Are you <laughs> sure? Like, I, I, I'm not one of those people that shows up on the keynotes. Uh-huh. And you're talking about the, this was 2007. So I started at Apple two weeks before the iPhone came out in this Mm. weird org. But my focus at the time was not feeling like part of the community. I was just uh, so much imposter syndrome. I was sure that someday they would just figure out that I was not Mm -hmm. Apple worthy, that Mm -hmm. I was just nose down, just going, 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 going. Because I, I was like, there's, oh my gosh, I don't know how I've gotten here. But so that I think just <laughs> exacerbated my own feeling of feeling an outsider because I went and became a hermit in some ways too. But it wasn't until I think 2013, we moved to Switzerland that the community there was like, there's no community, very mm-hmm. little, few people. In design, and, you mean? In design and sort of digital and UX, it was very mm-hmm. small. And so I just reached out to people on Twitter and said, I'm moving here. And they were like, what? You're moving here? And so it was the first time that I felt welcome in that way. That was quite different. And But I also wasn't Swiss and I didn't speak French. So mm-hmm. there were aspects of that of feeling an outsider <laughs> too. And Right. I think, you know, it, it took a lot of self-work on my own to establish where I began and ended mm-hmm. for me to then put myself out there to make me feel like less of an outsider. Yeah. There's still parts of me that I know I'm part and I'm not part of like the club, if you will. Right. I, <laughs> I, I, part of your I, own I, club, you yeah. know, <laughs> you well, yeah, sort of. I'm not looking to get tens of thousands of followers and I don't write to get that or those things. And I'm quite pleased now that I'm getting to meet people like you and others that I've known about or they've written things like 20 years ago that inspired me. And now they're becoming friends is quite nice. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, same actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, I've it, been feeling in the same boat for the last few years, especially since I started the podcast, and yeah. that kind of opens doors. Or you start speaking in conferences, which is something. That's a. There's a whole other thing with conferences too. You know, I've never been accepted mm-hmm. to interaction design conference or IA summits or like I've applied to all of those years on end and could yeah. never get an invitation to those. And then there was this sort of breakthrough moment where I did write. I wrote an article, I think it was 2015 or 2016, like just wrote and put it on Medium at the time because I moved, you know, everybody was moving away from blogs to Medium and, and all that. But I wrote about introducing organizational culture into existing organizational culture. So introducing Mm -hmm. design culture into already established organizational culture. And Aaron Walter, who was uh, at MailChimp at the time, and I think maybe moved over to Envision right at that time, just happened to read it, happened to find it. And so then invited me to this tiny little event called Design Leadership Camp. And I I show up there and I'm nobody knows who I am. I you know, <laughs> uh, and suddenly in the room I'm with all these people. I was like, oh my gosh, they did that and they did that. Hmm. And it but that experience quick made me quickly realize it was like, oh wait, uh we're doing the same things. I totally have these different perspectives than they have. I've had these experiences and now they're asking me questions. Oh, I I feel like less of an outsider, but also I think in some ways it it, it did both. It exacerbated the feeling and then hmm. made me feel connected in other ways too. Yeah, and I want to circle back to a couple things that we've been talking about. One is that sense of comparison. Comparing Mm -hmm. ourselves to others is actually part of this need to belong. So those two things are linked in our how our brains work and how human behavior works. So we do, we compare ourselves to others to see, am I accepted here? That's like one thing I'd love to, to talk about a little bit and how we've gotten beyond that, or at least dealt with it, right? Because right, I don't know if right. you can ever get <laughs> completely beyond it. Uh, it just doesn't come up for me as often anymore. But the other is finding your community and yeah. creating your community, which I'm hearing mm-hmm. a lot of in what you're talking about. So firstly, that comparison, and we know to compare is to despair. And we know that. And yet, Often, I know that there have been times in the past, like I too have done a lot of self-work for me, like through self-coaching and coaching and cognitive behavior psychology. But but in the past, there were times when I would, it was almost like I couldn't even see how I could not compare. And it was so clear to me that I was falling short when I looked around. There's this dichotomy, I think, this double-edged sword of what happens when people share. And I think when thinking about comparison, I never thought about it as an 
individual like me against somebody else or me against mm. this one person. Mm-hmm. I don't think I ever went to that individual level. But what I saw was I would seek out new information. And so I would then read about these perspectives of others where we were kind of at the same moments and they would write so eloquently or they would give a speech so eloquently. And I would turn it around and say like, why is, why are those same things working for them or seemingly working for them? And they're not working for me. Hmm. And it took a while. And then after kind of meeting some of these folks where if you talk to them when the lights aren't on, like, no, none of this worked. Like they, they, you know, they would say, oh, here's how you approach org design, or here's how you approach communication. And then I would go and follow up with them or talk to them after and say like, well, well, how are you doing this? Well, how does that result in this? And they're like, we don't have that figured out. We're not doing this. <laughs> But for a long time without having those conversations, there was a good four or five years where I was thankful that they were sharing their information, but also it was turning into, why am I broken? But Mm -hmm. you you have to understand that this was still a period of where I was carrying lots of shame. I hadn't Mm -hmm. really begun cognitive behavioral theory or therapy Mm -hmm. and doing all that self-work. So I was still like, how is it working for them? And then finding out later that they were like, it's totally not working in that way. The sort of palpable effects that that had with me is certainly influence how I approach community building now and, and writing and sharing now is I take intentional, purposeful decisions not to put things in the world that I don't have any demonstrable evidence for. Mm-hmm. I know there's lots of great inspirational reading out there where people are just kind of writing whatever is coming to mind. (laughs) And I also know that gets interpreted as, oh, that's the way forward. And for me, I was like, I knew how much that affected me and thinking that I was broken. And now having been in this place that I'm in now of teaching and developing leaders to be more of that organizational executive kind of role, I would say like 90% of the people of the students have come to us have said like, why am I broken? Why am Mm -hmm. I doing this wrong? I read this article about what big name company is doing. Mm -hmm. And that's where we might talk about, well, do you know that they have like a marketing budget and that it's part of their (laughs) recruitment practice. And it's Mm -hmm. part of their business model to sell it this way. Or do you know that person who's really famous? They've never been a manager. Hmm. You're already three, you know, levels or whatnot, but beyond that, you manage managers, that person that you are citing here, they've never been a people manager. They've never had your responsibilities. Hmm. And uh, I don't uh, name or blame. I don't shame. I I believe uh, uh, it's very important not to shame people, but also that's, that's then transferred into, um, gosh, I want to try to, when I put things in the world, do my best to think about the harm. It might also unintentionally create in addition to the benefits of me putting Mm -hmm. that into the world. And I know for me that reading so much of what I thought were 
experts or people who are <clears throat> doing it and proving it, then finding out later, they were like, no, I, I left that job two months later, you know, <laughs> or I was like, oh, oh, okay. <laughs> like pull back the uh, curtain. <laughs> right. Right. And so for and it's me, just this little man who's that's or, right. Like it's just There's, Oz behind it. I want to, if I put things into the world and try to build community, my goal is to hopefully ensure that people feel less of that imposter syndrome, that there are ways to get unstuck with each other, but to really be in community so that we don't have members who feel like outsiders or, mm -hmm. um, yeah. 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 Interestingly, I think something that you touched on kind of goes back to talking about comparing and one of the dangers of comparing these days is that there is this abundance of quote unquote success out there of people we don't know. I mean, there's, I think it used to be media like magazine and television mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. books, right? And now it's just this proliferation of social media that just is showing us how great everybody is like, there are a lot long periods of time when i don't engage in social media at all i just yeah. feel so much more stable in my in myself oh, we and, should understand that yeah they have to capitalize and, on human behavior right. on how uh, like right. this is how we are sort of designed as humans to yeah. act which is wanting to belong which is comparing ourselves yeah. to others to see where we do fit in. But I love that you you brought up that building of community because I think that it can also just look like how people can find their community. Yeah. And I think it does take time. It does take people a long amount of time sometimes to really yeah. find their community. But I suppose the flip side of the proliferation of success on social media is also the proliferation of communities. And um, so there are a lot more out there. It mm -hmm. is still difficult to find the one. Mm -hmm. I know I've been a part of a lot of different communities, on online communities that just really haven't clicked. But yeah. now I'm in a couple that are fantastic and yeah one of which is where i met you and so i think it just it it's trial and error unless you know of a better way <laughs> this goes back to like self-work of knowing where you begin and end and really understanding what you need so we go ba back to maslow i think a lot of our careers now especially if we're, you're a designer your basic needs are met but we all have we're seeking more. We want more needs. We want to go higher up that pyramid and we want to seek enlightenment and love and the third eye, whatever it is that we want. And I think that's the struggle that so many are going, I want more mm -hmm. than just a paycheck and benefits and this. And I want to work at a company that wants more mm -hmm. than just creating revenue. Right. It 
I want to go back to the comparison thing too, because one of the things with the proliferation of success, and I heard this, I think it might've been Conan O'Brien when talking about comedy hmm. is that for a long time, he would compare himself to Letterman or Johnny Carson. And it took him a while to then figure out they're like 20 years farther down the path. Mm-hmm. They've just have 20 more years of practice. They're not successful, more successful for me. They are just at a different point on the timeline. And I think that's right. one of the things that I want to highlight, particularly if anybody's listening and they are early-ish in their career and they see the proliferation of success by individuals, by companies, is a lot of people are 15 to 20 years into this. Mm-hmm. They've been talking about it. They've got a, just a lot more repetitions. They are also probably dealing with a lot of the same things in terms of like wanting to be seen, wanting to be validated. They're just th- worrying about those in different parts of yeah. their career. Yeah, exactly. And I think to your point about coming into your career later at a later age, I, I know a lot of people struggle with that also, making them feel different. But honestly, there are so many people at different places in their careers. It's easy to make too much of my age and am I doing okay mm. for my age or my peers? Am I doing as much as my peers are? The people that I worked with 10 years ago. It doesn't matter. It's your yeah. journey. And we all right. have a different journey. And so more focusing on what do, what results do I want versus, I mean, do I even really? <laughs> it, right. it, it, it sort of it dawned on me gradually that, I was comparing myself to people who had something I didn't even want at right, some point, right. you know, like it's funny. I never wanted to be in an executive role. That's actually. right. It's funny. <laughs> it's often until we're like at that moment where, I, I mean, if I were to have an honest conversation, I would say like the majority of you do not want to be a VP, mm-hmm. not because it's not interesting or they're interesting challenges, but it's so completely different than what you know of now. I can't tell you how many people I've met where they said, oh, I got that job and that was not a match for me. Mm-hmm. And I think it's again, goes back to like <laughs> the importance for me in self-work is to say, well, nobody else has my three kids that I'm helping to raise. Nobody else is in a partnership with my spouse. Nobody else is has these responsibilities that or these interests that I am. Those are mm-hmm. all mine and completely unique. And so what is healthy and important for my needs to get those higher level needs are in addition to creating, you know, some stability and financial income mm-hmm. and all that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. And I had a wonderful conversation with a friend where they were sitting there going, while I'm looking at these trends and this is like what it says I should do next and where I should be next. (laughs) And we had this conversation. I said, well, like think of a time when you felt feelings that you, you want to have think of a time in your past. 
what were those feelings? And they mentioned, you know, I felt happy and I felt safe and I felt excited. And I was like, well, let's talk about the conditions, what were present there. And they were talking about, oh, this and that. And I was like, UK, you mentioned nothing about being a VP. <laughs> In fact, everything you talked about was like, you were running your own tiny little business. Mm-hmm. And they said, yeah, yeah, that's actually ultimately what I want to do. And I said, so this job that you're negotiating right now, this VP job that you're, it's just a step to eventually get you to the place. Is that going to give you some of the financial freedom that you want? Are you going to be able to do a great job and not have to put your entire emotional self into that? Because really your emotional self, your the better value or whatever the optimal thing for you is to ultimately be running your own thing and living on a farm. They're like, mm-hmm. yeah, oh, I can do both. <laughs> and I think there's this pressure that we see that, especially for those entering this career journey or still thinking about, oh, there's five steps to maturity. I think once you kind of get to a certain point, I think what I would say to my past self is like, actually, there's no limit. Mm-hmm. There's no num- top. There's no number <laughs> yeah. five. You are. We, we're really kind of limiting ourselves with That's our right. our limiting beliefs so much of the time. But you can't just like wake up one day and know that. Like no, no, what you said. No. And is true for me. It takes a lot of work uncovering what are our limiting beliefs, uncovering where is if it's if it is a lack of confidence or if it is a feeling of being not yeah. enough. Like where is that rooted? And I mean, there's a, I think this, there's a lot of work to do. There is, and I think the biggest lesson that I learned in reflection when I started my own work was. I also wasn't being active in trying to find community. I sat for a long time. It does. I sat for a lot of time going, I'm not included. I feel like an outsider. (laughs) And then I also, through work with a therapist, went and I made no, I took no action to Mm -hmm. remedy that. I took no. Other than that one instance at South by Southland, I never did the work to also go try to connect with people in a more meaningful way. And so that's what I would say. It's also work uh, on our own uh, to go find and be part of community. Yeah, that fear of rejection can be really strong. Getting to a place where you understand rejection is emotional pain, but it's recoverable. What other people think actually doesn't really matter in the big picture. Like you think about like five years from now, how much will that really affect your life? But yeah, I want to make sure that before we wrap up, we talk Mm. just for a minute or two about what you've got going on because I feel like, I mean, you have a lot of workshops and classes and your company provides, well, you have a couple now, but sort of schools. But I think that that kind of training also helps a lot of folks who feel like they, you know, would like some more information, what sets them apart. This could differentiate me. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I would love to to just hear a little bit about 
both your operations? Well, it's it's kind of two brands, but it's all wrapped up into one thing. When I, I first started the company, I was like, well, I, I want to do some teaching. I want to do some development. You know, one of the things that I saw out in the world was how often people were given the opportunity to move into people leadership roles and organizational leadership roles, and they were entirely left on their own. It certainly mm-hmm. happened to me every time that at a time when I probably could have used the most coaching and mentorship and guidance, I was on my own. And so that's one thing is me saying like everybody deserves to be developed no matter what level you're at. And it's often when we get into these people management roles or the further in our career where we still deserve and can benefit from and need, have that innate need to be mentored and to be developed. And this Not is second like wave a, dive. This is this what is, led yeah, so this is what led to second wave dive, second wave right? Dive. But second wave dive is is a weird name. And if I talk to somebody (laughs) for three minutes, they understand it. But we did courses there for three years. But what we were also doing is building up a different type of internal community and learning new ways to teach the way adults might learn and to incorporate a lot of coaching into Mm -hmm. the teaching as well, the instructional materials. But then and we just announced chief design officer school because mm-hmm. that name sort of speaks for itself what are we what are we doing here we're helping you practice your executive skills before you get the gig and what i can say and i imagine you you have a lot of familiarity with this too is once you're getting into people management and organizational management the way to relieve anxiety, the way to drive things forward is to apply the same rigor that you would to craft as a designer to relationships and communication. And that really requires us to do a lot of self-work to dig into these deeper places. And so what we do with the schooling is say, you will learn so many of these frameworks, but so much of it is then The way we instruct is through reflection that you didn't know you needed Mm -hmm. (laughs) and giving you the capacity to reflect in new ways. That is to say, you are an equal partner into developing this maturity. You can only be as mature as an organization as the least mature. So if you're a design org that's a level five maturity and you're partnering with a product org that's a level one, guess what? You're a level one. Mm -hmm. And so it's not just this discussion of design being mature. You then have the, all these ways that say, how can you invite others to mature with you while also applying rigor and honoring them and not being manipulative or coercive? And how can you manage your own emotional energy while still meeting meeting quarterly goals? So these are a lot of the areas that people aren't really given a lot of practice. Mm -hmm. And I would say for the leaders that have learned this over the years, they have not really had the capacity to turn that into coaching and instructional materials for their teams. Right. And so that's just an area that 
serves me like as an individual i love doing that and mm -hmm. that's kind of what we do now is a new approach to communal learning but it's all in service to you as an individual have needs and you want to serve a society and a collective good in new ways and you want to challenge your organization and in healthy ways but you also want to see like am i working for an organization that doesn't fit me yeah. and fit where i want to go yeah. we want to open the curtains and see the wizard around <laughs> those areas too and so that's nice. that's what we do now and it's been a lot of fun and used to kind of slowly healthy growth rather yeah. than just pure hockey sticks <laughs> that's awesome Thank you so much. I'm sorry that we have to wrap up because this has been a great conversation and I love to continue. Yeah. So we, our conversation here ends here now, but luckily yes. we get to keep chatting and, and <laughs> I, I love our chats and thank you so much for having me. I think I'm speaking for probably a lot of listeners really appreciate your openness and honesty. Thank you. Thank you for holding a safe space for me. If you want to know more about Ryan's amazing programs and the Chief Design Officer School, go to secondwavedive.com. Also, I have some resources to share with you related to this topic. I love the book Weird, The Power of Being an Outsider in an Insider World. <laughs> I think that title really kind of speaks for itself. That's by Olga Kazan, and it's about the power of knowing where you belong. I also really love the book Originals, How Nonconformists Move the World by Adam Grant. And this book really speaks to me. Maybe it'll speak to you as well. If you identify as a nonconformist and maybe find it challenging as a nonconformist in the business world, there are links to those and other resources on the show notes page and the episode page on uxcake.co. Thanks so much for joining me on UX Cake today. And if you enjoyed this episode, leave us a comment on LinkedIn, YouTube, or Instagram. You can also help us out by leaving a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Or share a slice of UX Cake with a friend or colleague. There's always enough UX Cake to go around. Bye for now.